Good morning, everybody. And thank you for inviting me back. Those of you who were here last year will remember that you did a series on Isaiah, and I came and spoke and talked a little bit about Isaiah, who lived and ministered around 740 years before the birth of Christ, and he ministered till about 700 BC. Hello. Oh, yes. Sorry, I better do that. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Ah, my apologies. Um, yeah, so we were talking about Isaiah and uh, how his book was attacked by the critics, modern critics. They don't like what's said in there because of the wonderful prophecies that Isaiah made. For example, he talked about uh, uh, Cyrus being the, the leader who would uh, set the people free from their captivity in Babylon. Actually, by way of introduction, before I even start on that, I should say that my wife said to me that this is a complicated message this morning. So if it's complicated and you don't like maths and things like that, and you're not sure of history and dates and all those sort of things, just bear with me because we'll build up to what happens at the end. But she also told me that um, I had a boring um, uh, title for it, and that's why I had to get that changed to something like Daniel um, uh, being such a, a, a fantastic um, prophet. You know, what did I put up there on the first one? Did he, did he get that up there? I can't, I can't see it. They're managing at the back? Yeah, well, we'll get there. But anyway, by way of background to the book of Daniel, we, we are going back and looking at that. Oh, that, that doesn't look like anything. Oh, is it? Yeah, the most amazing prophet. That's the one I wanted. Yeah, Daniel is one of the most amazing people and writers in the scriptures. The things that he talked about were amazing. We thought that Isaiah was pretty clever. when he Well, he wasn't clever. It was God revealed to him these things, that Cyrus was going to be the shepherd. And uh, three times, there are three lots of verses in um, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45 verse 1, and Isaiah 45 verse 13, and I'm sort of skipping through these fairly quickly, you guys at the back, because I'm now down to number 6 uh, in the schedule. Yeah, um, And you see it's written there, and I put an, an emphasis there, that Cyrus was named over a hundred years before he ruled. Now, the cynics say you can't possibly do something like that. I mean, that's just... Um, written by somebody after the events. And uh, so that's how they justify it. And they say that Isaiah was written by two people. Well, when, when you come to the book of Daniel, you've got some real uh, incredibly difficult things to explain away. Daniel made some of the most incredibly accurate prophecies about human history in the Bible. He foretells human history in such detail that the secular critics they just can't accept that he wrote these things during the early 5th century BC. So let's turn to the scriptures, and I'll put it up on the screen there for you. Um, number 7, we've got Daniel chapter 1, and this is the introduction to the man whom we know in the scriptures as Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that is in 605 years BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, 
and he put and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind, for every kind of learning, well informed and quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily, uh, a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were in, uh, to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. There was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. When we were kids, we used to have this little saying that, um, to remember these names. Uh, shake your bed, make your bed, and to bed you go. And that helped us to remember that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So uh, that, was, that was just a little rhyme that mum and dad taught us to help us remember those names. By way of explanation, we're going to have a quick look at what the Babylonians used to do. They had a very interesting way of conquering and subjugating the lands that they had invaded. Rather than leaving the people in the land where they lived, they would remove them entirely from their homeland and shift them far away from it. And the first stage of such subjugation was to take the, the, the leaders, the, bright, uh, the brightest of society, and leave a puppet administration in its place. And now this happened in um, Nebuchadnezzar's first attack of Jerusalem in 605 BC. And so Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were included in this first wave of exiles who were taken back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar left uh, Jehoiakim's 18-year-old son Jehoiachin as king of Judah. Now in 601 BC, Nebuchadnezzar attempted an invasion of Egypt, but Pharaoh Necho, he repulsed him and uh, Nebuchadnezzar suffered heavy losses. Now as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's defeat by Egypt, King Jehoiachin decided to side with Egypt. He thought, these are the winners, so I'm going to side with these guys and they'll help and protect us from Nebuchadnezzar. This rebellion was short-lived because Nebuchadnezzar came back to Jerusalem and he took Jehoiachin, the puppet king, and the court that was in Jerusalem and exiled them to Babylon. And Zedekiah, the uncle of uh, Jehoiachin, was made king in his place. Then later on, there was another rebellion. Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, and this time, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. So Jerusalem was raised in 586 BC. And by raising, I mean it was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar tore down the walls of Jerusalem. They destroyed Solomon's temple, and they attempted to wipe out Jewish culture altogether. Those who were left in the land that hadn't been exiled were the very poor and the least important. Many thousands of people were killed in Judah. 
You know, after removing and killing the majority of the population and its leadership, Nebuchadnezzar brought in other people from other lands that had been conquered previously, and they were assimilated into Babylonian society, and they filled the land to take the place of those who were there. And so we are introduced to Daniel and his three friends at this first stage of the, um, of the conquest of Judah. You remember the first three stages? Well, Daniel and his friends were taken back to Babylon in that first stage. And the Babylonians picked out the brightest young men from the upper classes of the land, and they took them and into Babylon to be re-educated in the Babylonian way of doing things. These young men were to learn the language, culture, and the religion and ways of working things in Babylon. So we can assume from this that, Babylon, uh, that, sorry, that Daniel and his three friends were fairly well up in the social ladder. They were probably associated with the royal family. We don't know that for sure. But these were the guys that were the brightest of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. So who was this man, Daniel? We're going to have a quick look at it. There are a number of things that we learn about Daniel as we read through the scriptures. The first is that Daniel was a man who had a purpose. He knew what he was going to do. And so he, um, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says this in the King James Version, but Daniel purposed in his heart. He made a decision and he followed through on it. The second thing we learn about Daniel, and we know it from a Sunday school days, we used to sing the song, you know, Daniel was a man of prayer, daily prayed he three times. Well, that's based on chapter 6, verse 10b, B, which says three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So Daniel was a man of prayer. But the greatest thing about Daniel was he was a prophet. In chapters 7 to 12 in particular, they contain a selection of Daniel's, uh, what we might call his best sermons. Some of the most incredible, distinct, and amazingly accurate prophecies contained in the Bible. And uh, so we've got Daniel the man. Then we've got Daniel the book. Daniel the book is made up of two parts. If you read it, it's really um, divided into two sections. First, in chapters 1 to 6, we have the historical narrative, the things that happened to Daniel during his life. And uh, it was, a lot of it is biographical too because we also read about Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. They set the scene in which Daniel... Uh, lived during the reign of three world dictators. There was Nebuchadnezzar, first of all, then there was Belshazzar, his grandson, and Darius, the Mede. It starts with Daniel as a teenager. He was only a young fella. He was a teenager when he was taken into captivity, and it ends with Daniel as an old man in his 90s. He was literally there in Babylon for the 70 years of captivity that was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. In the first 70-year period, it covers a period of captivity from 606 BC through to 536 that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. And it says this, The whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And then there's a six, second 70-year period, which covers a similar time frame, but it's a little bit different 
The second 70-year period covers the time from when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC to when the temple was rebuilt again in 516 BC. And we read about that in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. And this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. The second part of the book of Daniel is prophetic. Chapters 7 through to 12 contain prophecies which expand on the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, in which God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the coming world empires. And I know you can't read it all, but basically we have in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold representing Babylon, the shoulders and chest representing the Medo-Persian empire, then we have the Greek, uh, it's gone out of my head, um, Greek Empire, followed by the Romans being the legs, and then at the bottom there is the feet that are made of clay and iron. The bronze section was just an amazing section, and we're going to look at that in a, bit, a little bit closer this morning. The Greek Empire was established by Alexander the Great, and you've probably heard of him in some of your history lessons at school, if you did. Um, and his kingdom was cut short because he died when he was only about 33 years old. And uh, after he died, his kingdom was divided up into four sections. And uh, that was predicted by Daniel more than 100 years before it happened, probably three or 400 years or 300 years anyway. The Roman Empire succeeded them, but anyway, we'll talk about it a little bit further. Daniel had this great vision. Verse, um, yeah, I haven't written down the verse here, but anyway, slide number 31. Yeah, we got it there. After witnessing this, I continued to look and saw another beast appearing from beneath the waves. And this one was fierce and fast like a leopard. And this is talking about that, um, that uh, one of Greece. It had a bird's wings like a lion and uh, two pairs instead of one coming out of its back. It had four heads and men bowed down to, bowed down to this beast and it was permitted to rule over them. This beast representing Greece is a leopard, which is one of the swiftest of the big cats. And if you know anything about Alexander the Great, he was known for his swiftness, the swiftness of his conquest of all that lay in his path. At the age of 33, Alexander died of a fever, or some suspect he might have been poisoned in Babylon in 323 BC. And upon his death, his empire was divided up between his four generals, who were Cassandra, there was Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus. The Hellenistic world, that is the Greek world, eventually settled into these four stable kingdoms after a lot of infighting. The Ptolemaic kingdom was Egypt, and that was ruled by Ptolemy, and the Seleucid empire was in the east under Seleucus, and the kingdom of Pergamon was in Asia Minor under Antigonus, and Cassander ruled the Macedonian and Greek area. Now remember Daniel's description of the beast representing Greece. Not only was it swift, but it had four heads. 
and it had four wings. And the Greek empire was of bronze, and it was, it was one empire, yet it had four heads ruling over it. And it stayed this way until the next great empire came up from the sea. If you can't see the connections in verse, uh, in, with the verse in chapter 7, verse 6, then turn with me over to chapter 8, where the beasts representing Medo-Persia and Greece become a ram and a goat. And Gabriel said to Daniel, I have been sent here to help you understand the things that will take place later in the final time of wrath. For everything that you have seen refers to the appointed time of the end. The ram you saw by the Ulai Canal, the one with the two long horns, represents the kings of Medo and Persia. And notice again, there's that jewel represented by the horns, two horns, Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece, and the great horn that stuck out between his eyes symbolizes the first king of Greece. That is Alexander the Great. The breaking off of the first horn and its replacement by four prominent horns depicts the four kingdoms that will arise from this one nation, none of which will have as much power as the first king. Now remember that Daniel was writing this in 542 BC. That's a long time before Greece came on the scene and Alexander the Great. And in the first year of Belshazzar, uh, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign over Babylon, Daniel had a dream and he saw visions as he slept in his bed. And when he got up, he remembered the dream and wrote it down. And this is the beginning of his record. And that's uh, from the voice translation. There's a picture of four, four beasts. Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians in the Battle of Isis, which was four... Um, it wasn't in 333, it was uh, back in the time of Daniel. But um, the Medes and Persians were defeated by Greece in 333 BC. And this was when Alexander the Great, the king of Greece, defeated Darius III, the king of the Persians. And that was the end of the Medo-Persian Empire. So we can easily calculate that these visions were and, it were and the interpretation of them were recorded by Daniel more than 200 years before the events occurred. Now that's amazing, isn't it? God got it so right. He said there would be this coming king who would be swift, he would be powerful, people would worship him, and that soon after he conquered the world, his power would be snapped off and replaced by four kings. Another incredible prophecy is found in chapter 9 where Daniel tells us about this period of 70 periods of seven years. And this passage has been studied by many people. And it's been argued about for many years as people try and understand what this period of 77s means. And whether or not that has been completed in the past or if it's still got parts of it to occur in the future. Well, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, we read the words of the archangel Michael. He said, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. God highly esteemed Daniel. And he gave this message to Daniel to share. He said, therefore, consider the word and, the un and understand the vision. 
Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jewish people, of course. Um, for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and I emphasize that to when the word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven periods of seven and 62 periods of seven. And it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but it will be in times of trouble. It will be rebuilt in times of trouble. And if you want to read about how the, the Jerusalem was rebuilt, go back and read the book of Nehemiah. There was a lot of opposition to the Jewish people rebuilding the city. But God says it will be rebuilt, and after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Who's he talking about, the anointed one there? He's talking about the Lord Jesus. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people who will come, he's talking about the Romans. And they are the ones who destroyed the temple that Herod rebuilt for the Jewish people. He will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Amazing, amazing prophecy. Well, most um, scholars agree that the sevens refer to weeks, and that the periods of time they're referring to are weeks of years. And so all up, we're talking about a period of 490 years, starting at that specific date, when the order went out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, Sir Robert Anderson, he wrote a book on this subject called The Coming Prince. And uh, he studied this subject not only as a lawyer, and I think there's a picture of it on the screen coming up, but anyway, he studied the subject. He was not only a lawyer, but he was the head of British police, um, and he ran Scotland Yard in England. If you ever get a chance to read his book, it's still being published today, and it's over 100 years old, but um, it's still in print today. It's an amazing book. It is incredible. And Nehemiah, in chap in Nehemiah chapter 2 gives us the date the order was issued to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And that date was in the month of Nisan, on the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. And we can work that out as being the 5th of March, 444 years before Christ. Note also how this period of sevens is broken up into three periods. First of all, there was um, seven sevens, or 49 years. And some commentators suggest that this may be the, when Malachi wrote his book, the last book of the Old Testament. I don't know whether that's correct or not, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it, that the Old Testament comes to a close, and then there's a period of silence for um, several, for 400 years or so. And um, finally, we see that, or secondly, we see there's a period of 62 sevens, or 434 years, and then one seven, giving a total of 490 years, or 70 times seven. Now, this might get a little bit complicated for some people and I apologize for that but look this is what's written in the scriptures he's talking about these periods of years 
Now, Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, written more than 100 years ago, didn't have computers and the knowledge of astronomy, etc., that we have today to establish dates and times like we can. And when his work was recently checked, they found that he'd made a couple of very, very minor errors, but his conclusions were correct. The date of Christ's crucifixion has been established by checking the timing of the moon for the Passover that occurred on the weekend that Jesus died. Traditionally, we look at Friday the 3rd of June, AD 33, and that's the assumed date of the crucifixion that took place because that was on the 14th day of Nisan. And if you know your Bible history, the 14th day of Nisan was the day of Passover that was instituted by God when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And each year they would celebrate on the 14th day of Nisan the delivery of Israel from Egypt. Now that's a very nice fit for the Christian church and it's been that way for many, many years. We've thought of it as Christ being the Passover lamb and dying on the day of Passover. However, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, you will find that the lamb was chosen on the 10th day, which corresponds to um, earlier in the week when Jesus re entered into um, Jerusalem. And uh, it was to be kept for four days and slaughtered at twilight before the start of the 14th day of the month. So it was slaughtered in the af late afternoon or early evening, which was the start of the Passover day. Remember the Jewish day starts at evening, sunset, and it goes for 24 hours. We start ours at midnight, but um, we just need to keep that in mind as we think about it. So the Passover officially started on Thursday night and went through Friday to Friday evening. Leviticus 23 verse 5 tells us that the Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month, that is the day of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. The problem with the crucifixion taking place on Friday is this. It was a holy day and it was to be treated in the same way that a Sabbath was treated. No one was to work on the Sabbath, so they couldn't work on the day of Passover either because the Passover was considered a sacred assembly. And you can see that in Leviticus 23 verses 1 to 5. Traditionally, Christians have celebrated the crucifixion being on the Friday since it was the Passover day. And he was the Passover lamb of God. Now if you look at this carefully, both John and Luke, and John in writing in chapter 19 of his book, verses 13 and 17, and Luke 23, verses 44 and 54, reveal that Jesus died on the day before a high or special Sabbath, which started at 6 p.m. in the evening. Now, using either a quality uh, Hebrew or Gregorian calendar converter or some sophisticated astronomy software, we can work out that the Friday, the 14th of Nisan, or the, the 14th day of Nisan, occurred on a Friday during a full moon between the years AD 27 to 35, and it was only on one day, and that was Friday, the 14th day of Nisan, in the year 33 AD. I'm sorry, this might sound a little bit complicated, but that's the date of Jesus' death. 
Luke, 20, Luke 3 verses 21 22 tells us that Jesus started his ministry at about the age of 30 and he was born approximately one or two years before Christ or BC or before the common era as they now call it. And so adding 30 plus three or four years of his earthly ministry fits in nicely with this death occurring in AD 33. Now remember, the Passover always took place on the 14th day of Nisan. In AD 33, the 14th day of Nisan was a Friday. Now going back to Exodus, we see the Passover lamb was sacrificed in the afternoon or evening before the Passover. This means that Jesus must have died on the 13th day of Nisan on the eve of the Passover, on the Thursday afternoon. Well, let's go back to those 77s. We go back to those periods of sevens, we see the Jewish year is 360 days. We find that 69 sevens is a period of 483 years of 360 days. Um, Another complicating thing that comes into this is that the Jewish year was based on 360 days, but we know that there's 365 and a quarter days in a year. So every five years or so, they would have what they called a leap month. And that's how they got things back into order. And we have a leap year each four years so that we keep up to date that way. And that's what the Jewish people did in their calendar. So it becomes complicated when you try and work out, well, how many days, and how many months and years went through. So you know, um, Sir Robert Anderson had gone through all of this. And uh, so starting with 483 times 360 gives us 173,880 days. I'm sorry, I haven't got it written up there, but counting forward from that day that the, 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 the um, order was given to rebuild Jerusalem, it brings us to the 13th day of Nisan, or the 2nd of April, AD 33. Now, isn't that absolutely mind-blowing? That number of days brings you right through to that Thursday before the Passover. So in conclusion, we can <coughs> correct the start date for the 483-year prophetic countdown as the 5th of March, 444 BC, and the end date as the 13th of Nisan uh, in AD 33. Now John says in chapter 19, verse 31, now it, the day of the crucifixion, was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. This day was a high Sabbath, a double Sabbath if you like, a sacred assembly. The date of the 13th of Nisan um, corresponds to Thursday the 2nd of April, which was the day of Jesus' crucifixion. So Daniel's vision of the 483 years brings us right up to the very day that Jesus was put to death. Now, I wish I'd known this when my dad was alive, and Bob's not here this morning to hear me confirm, but my dad and Bob's brother used to love talking about the return of the Lord. And uh, my dad always thought that Jesus must have been crucified on the Thursday because when you get that, you've got three days and three nights in the tomb. He was crucified on the Thursday, Friday night. Um, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night, he was in the tomb. He was in the tomb on Friday, Saturday, and on third day, Sunday, he rose again. My dad always thought that that was the case, but he couldn't work out how to prove it. 
And that came to me as I was preparing this, and I'm just being blown away by that. This leaves us with a missing week of seven years. Many believe that this is still, uh, still a future period and will occur during the time of the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, as the Bible calls it. I haven't got time to go into any detail on that here today, but I'd like to finish on another amazing aspect of Daniel's prophetic words. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, he says this, From the time when the daily sacrifice is prohibited and the disgusting idol that desecrates the most holy place is put in its place, there will be 1,290 days or years. Verse 12, those who remain true to God and reach the end of the 1,335 days or years are sure to experience God's blessing. Now we don't know the exact date when the daily sacrifices in Solomon's temple ended. We can assume, however, that it probably occurred when the Ark of the Covenant was removed from Jerusalem by the priests. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. But archaeologists are pretty sure that Nebuchadnezzar did not take the Ark of the Covenant back to Babylon. And so the priests must have removed it at some period of time and hidden it well before the raising of Jerusalem in AD 586. So could it have been soon after the second siege of Jerusalem in 601 BC? I don't know, but let's just assume that it might have been. If it was, it's interesting then to do a quick calculation, and I haven't done a calculation like Sir Robert Anderson. I just have simplified it to keep it as simple as I can because I'm a simple sort of guy. But if you do a quick calculation and add 1,290 years to 601 BC and find out what happened in Jerusalem around that time, well, 1,290 minus 601 BC to get it into the modern years, it's 689 AD. What happened that here in Jerusalem? Well, the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omar was built between AD 685 and 691 by the Caliph Abd al-Malak ibn Marwan. The structure is not strictly a mosque. We see it there, but that's not the mosque that's on the Temple Mount. That's what we call the um, Kubat al Chakra. And I'm suggesting that this may indeed be what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation in chapter 12, verse 11. It's Arabic inscriptions on the inside, around the inside of the Dome of the Rock. Um, if we could grab that next slide. That's the inside. And up around the wall on that horizontal area that you can see, and up up the very top is this Arabic script. And it talks about Jesus in most unpatriotic uh, terms. It emphasizes the unity of God and rejects the Christian doctrines of the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. These are indeed an abomination and blasphemy as they denigrate the Lord Jesus himself. Now anyway, let's take, take another 1,335 1, years to that, and where do we end up? Where do we end up? Let's have a look at the next slide. Oh, 
oh, that's not very far away. I mean, that's not an accurate thing. Um, believe me, I haven't got that accurately, but I just did this out of interest, and I just couldn't believe it when I saw that, and I thought, boy, that's only two years away. Now, I know that I haven't calculated it correctly. I haven't calculated that accurately, and I have used years of 365 days, not Jewish years of 360, and so on. So this is not scientific, and it's not an accurate figure by any means. And nor do we know the date when the ark was removed from the temple and the daily sacrifice ended. I've made a whole lot of assumptions there, but it just shows that the Lord's coming may be a lot sooner than we think. We cannot determine the date of the Lord's return, so please don't think that I'm telling you that the Lord is coming in 2024. No one can do that. Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus said this about his own return. And before I came here this morning, I went to a service at um, Faith City Church for friends of ours whose baby was being dedicated. And Pastor Thea stood up at the start and she read these verses. I thought, man, the Lord's got something to say to me today about these verses. But he says, about that hour, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now I remember my father and John McClay, his cousin, that's Bob's brother, um, they used to talk about this a lot. And one of the things that they... Uh, used to do when I was a young fellow was discuss w when they thought the Lord would be returning and uh, uh, I caught on, they caught on to the words of the Lord when he said in Luke 21 verse 33 I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened and they were thinking and scratching their heads and thinking you know these things that are happening in their time uh, one of the key things that has happened in our generation is the state of Israel it came into effect on the, uh, in 1948. And so they thought, oh, yeah, now a Jewish generation is 40 years. So 1948 plus 40, that must make it about 1988. And so for a long time, they were convinced that the Lord was going to be coming in 1988. Well, 1988 came and went. And uh, so they knew they'd got it wrong. Uh, and uh, they went back to rethink it again. Aha, that's it, they said. Uh, we're talking about the times of the Gentiles here, and, and, and what is a Gentile generation? And so they thought this through, and they thought, well, they came up with this figure of 70 years. Now, I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but their new thought was that he's coming in 2018. And, uh, well, 2018 has come and gone, and uh, sadly so have they. Both of them went home to be with the Lord in 2018. But um, anyway, the Lord has his little chuckle about these things. Remember what I said. Nobody knows the day or the hour when the Lord will return. So if I die in 2024, remember it wasn't because I said the Lord was coming in 2024. <laughs> okay. Now, many, many people have made predictions about when the Lord's return will happen. And sadly, they've given Christians a bad name. I did a quick search on Google and found a list of around 50 different dates that people claimed the Lord would return by. 
For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses predicted that he would return in 1841, and when that didn't happen, they changed it to 1914. And now they say that he, uh, he didn't return in the flesh, but that that was when he started to rule in heaven. I can't work that one out because I thought that's where he was, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if he's not ruling in heaven, then who is? But anyway, Herbert W. Armstrong, when I was a young kid, there used to be this guy called Herbert W. Armstrong that spoke on the radio all the time, and he um, used to do this thing called uh, the Plain Truth magazine, and he predicted in... 1943 that Jesus would come, he would return in 1943. Well, that was long before I was born, so I don't remember that. But then he changed it to 1972, and then finally he said um, he would return before Armstrong died. Well, Armstrong died in 1986, and the church that he had founded is broken up into uh, different factions. I also remember a man called George who came to Ingester Street Bible Church to preach there about the second coming of Christ and I still have his books and uh, he predicted in 1991 that the Lord would return in 2005. He didn't. And please don't think I'm making any predictions here today. I'm not. The world is mocking and saying the words of 2 Peter 3 verse 4. Where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I personally think that this is one of the reasons why we don't hear a lot of good teaching about the second coming of Christ nowadays. When I was young in the Brethren churches in which I was raised, there were heaps of teachers who hammered the word about the subject of end time prophecy. You agree, Brian? Yeah. And um, there were people in the Brethren churches who were almost echoing Peter's words too. I've been hearing about this in ad infinitum. I'm not interested any longer. Teach us something different, something practical, something that means more to us today. Well, we've been warned that Jesus is coming. Daniel tells us that testing times are coming for the saints. We've all been warned by one of the most incredible prophets in the Bible one whom we can trust because we can see how the words that he prophesied about the coming kingdoms of Medo-Persia, about Greece, about Rome, all of these things, they came to pass exactly as the word of God said. One whose prophecies have been fulfilled can be believed. Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah went through testing times. Go and read the book of Daniel for yourself. You'll read about how these four guys went through some incredible tests. See what they did. See how they reacted in their testing times. Who did they put their trust in? And was he able to deliver them? Yes, he was. What lessons can we learn from them? And how can we prepare ourselves for the testing times that we have in our futures? Will we be good servants like they were who were found watching and waiting for the master's return? Or will we be like the five foolish virgins, unprepared for the coming of the Lord? We don't know when the Lord will return. It could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. Or maybe 2024 or sometime much later. We don't know. 
The point that the Bible says is that we need to be ready. We as individuals need to be watching and waiting. Maybe he'll call you home as an individual. Just a few weeks ago, some friends of ours, their youngest son, was driving back home. And he was driving along Milson Line across the bridge by Richardson Road there. I don't know whether you know it or not, but he crashed into another vehicle and was killed. None of us can say that we have this day or so much longer to live. We don't know when the Lord will call us home. But we need to be ready to enter eternity. Like the old song of Larry Norman says, I wish we'd all been ready, but it's too late. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. With the way things are developing in the world today, I believe his return is imminent. The question is, are you ready? If you're not sure of the answer to this question, please don't leave this place today without talking to someone and making sure that you know that you are ready for his return. Thank you, and God bless.